broadcasting live from the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. And no, that's not St. Louis. It's Des Moines, Iowa. And we're here in very frigid weather today, broadcasting from the studios of La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. A quick uh, look at the program lineup today. We're going to talk about uh, how faith communities are taking action on climate change. We'll also take a look at the uh, National Climate Assessment that just came out, released on the worst possible news date of the year. Surprise, surprise. Uh, we'll also talk about um, how asylum seekers are being greeted at the U.S. border, uh, not with open arms or any kind of, you know, easy access, easily accessible process for filing for asylum, but with tear gas. We'll also talk about how former Standing Rock Chairman uh, Dave Archambo is, uh, is doing these days, and he'll be in Iowa, actually, this coming week. I'll tell you a little bit more about my book, March Your Walker Pilgrim, and then later in the program we'll talk about the G20 Summit, which shows just how far American workers have fallen. I want to take a second to thank again Lorena, the host station for this program, the other stations around the state and around the country that rebroadcast the show. And I also encourage you to subscribe to the program on iTunes or Stitcher, and also to like us on Facebook, the Fallon Forum Facebook page. And take a quick minute here to thank the, uh, some of the local businesses that make this program possible. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe at 20th and Woodland in the Sherman Hill neighborhood. That's my grocery store. A catering service as well and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Thanks also to Catering by Sid. Owner Sid Cohn uses uh, local and fresh ingredients when in season and every one of her catering arrangements is custom made. Uh, thanks also to Sergeant's Garage. Uh, they've been servicing Fallon Mobiles for over four generations now. Four generations of cars, not people. And they do a great job at a fair price every time. They're located on 6th and College, just north of downtown Des Moines. Uh, thanks also to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant on Southeast 14th Street. Uh, authentic Mexican food, uh, great prices, excellent service. Uh, you'll love them. That's Cinco de Mayo Restaurant. Also thanks to uh, Diversity Insurance, located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. No appointment needed. Uh, stop by. That's Diversity Insurance at 1541 East Grand. Okay, again, welcome to the program today. Uh, thanks for listening online, uh, on Facebook, or wherever else you're picking up the show. And um, I want to welcome Matt Russell to the program. Matt is with the Interfaith, uh, the Iowa Interfaith uh, Power and Light, and um, wrote a very compelling editorial in the local paper recently, as well as uh, uh, spoke at a, 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 a um, Interfaith service that show just how much more involved the faith community is becoming in terms of speaking out on climate change. Matt, uh, great to have you here. Thanks, Ed. Great to be here. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, when I say faith communities, I mean across the board. Uh, we hear more and more people from the Native perspective, uh, Muslims, Jews, Christians, all speaking out about the urgency of uh, the climate crisis from a faith perspective. Yeah, I think what what we find in Iowa is, I mean, we're predominantly, you know, kind of mainline Christian, uh, but the Jewish voice, the Muslim voice, um, with a lot of uh, immigrants, um, the Sikh voice, uh, the Buddhist voice, um, across the board, we work with all of these, all of these um, religious traditions, and what ties us together is some common values around care for creation, um, care for care for the marginalized, the poor, and so climate change is really an opportunity for all of us to put our faith, uh, put the values of our faith to work for solving what is um, right now and, and historically in the whole history of the world the most pressing problem humans have ever faced, and that's the uh, that's the collapsing climate. Um. And certainly, uh, religious traditions have spoken uh, pretty strongly for the most part about the importance of. Uh, caring for the marginalized and the poor, as you said. But uh, there are also, in some traditions in particular, 
a fairly is a fairly strong thread of concern about about creation, about nature, about the uh, the the world in which we live, and and I assume that's playing into the conversation as well. Yeah, I mean, as far as Iowa Interfaith Power and Light, uh, our our mission is is uh, equip. Uh, equipping people of faith to find and implement solutions to climate change, faith-based solutions mm-hmm. to climate change. And, and for us, what that means is renewable energy, energy efficiency, and, and in Iowa here, helping farmers capture carbon on their farms. Yeah. So tell us more about that. How, 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 do, you, how do you explain uh, carbon capture to, well, I mean, to an Iowa farmer, but even more important, I guess, to, to people who live in the cities who might not even have a, a basic grasp of how that works? Well, it, it, essentially, we've put too much greenhouse gas pollution into the atmosphere. It's methane. It's carbon. Um, the most in the last 500 million years, I believe. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, and and th- th- really, there's no. De- I mean, there's really no authentic debate anymore about whether humans are causing this this uh, yeah, crisis. It to, tell it to Donald Trump. Yeah. Well. Um, <laughs> You know, we really stay focused on engaging people here in Iowa. And certainly, um, the Trump administration has made action on climate change more difficult. Um, but we're really focused on getting getting Iowans engaged, and particularly at the state level. So, while while we speak uh, across, uh, I mean, we, we we speak in churches and and we bring people together. Um, but as far as our political voice, we really focus on the on uh, state policy, mm. um, and we'll continue to do that. So back to your question about carbon, we put too much carbon into the atmosphere um, through you know greenhouse through uh, fossil fuels and other land management right. practices and things. We can uh, Iowans can can manage our land in a way that actually pulls that carbon out of the atmosphere and puts it to work on our farms. And so that's that's one of the things that Iowa can really lead what is, on. So what does that look like? How does that work? Well, I mean, it's it's really about soil health and the biology of the soil, and it's it's it, it, it's it's complicated. I mean, and this is kind of like rocket science. This mm-hmm. isn't easy, and um, it is something new. It's it's. I mean, plants sequester carbon, but if right. we're going to manage our living systems to really ratchet that up, it's hard. It's it takes innovation. It takes investment. Um, but what we're really doing is trying to focus. Uh, Iowans on how can we lead? Uh, we've got the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that came out in October. We've got the National Climate Assessment that came out uh, on Black Friday. Yeah, and then that report, the IPCC report, uh, it was more grim, more dire, more disturbing than any that we've seen previously. Right. Basically saying, we have 12 years to figure this out. Or we're toast. Well, the other thing is, is it's incredibly optimistic because it says everything that we need to solve this problem we already have. Except so this, the political will. Right. <laughs> Which, again, brings us back to why our people of faith, why, why is this in our wheelhouse? Why do we need to step up? Because it's not – the world is not demanding – uh, scientific solutions that don't exist, the world's demanding the political will. And and so this is a, a moral question, a political question, which is in the wheelhouse of people of faith here in Iowa. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, I say the political will, yes, I'm referring to the U.S. Congress and a lot of elected officials, a majority of elected officials, unfortunately, but political will also involves the public. I mean, we people need to step forward more aggressively, more 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 pointedly to address this, it also means the media. I mean, I'm I'm on a regular basis embarrassed by what I see in the media. Yeah, I mean, you, I, you, I, you can't you can't get there are only a few a few you know publications willing to really talk seriously and consistently about how urgent this crisis is. Yeah, I would say uh, what I'm seeing is something a little bit different. I'm seeing momentum. Um, so I'm I'm seeing farmers more willing to talk about this, yeah. not necessarily in public, but but more willing to talk about it. Uh, we had 60 percent increase in the number of faith leaders in Iowa, religious Iowa religious leaders that signed our religious leader statement last wow. month or, or earlier this together. month. So um, 
in the past, it's, it's been a, a few over 100, and this year was 217, wow, so great. 60% increase. We had 61 communities around the state, towns great. and communities represented. Uh, Loris College, uh, Central College, and Luther College all signed on as um, endorsing the statement as a religious institution. Yeah. So that, that's, that's showing some momentum. And, and I would say in the media, if, if what, what I'm seeing is um, a, a hopeful sign is, is less ink for the skeptics. So I think, you know, five or six years ago or even three years ago, you might have seen a story uh, about climate change, and they would always create space for the, the skeptical voice. I'm seeing less right. and less of that. So I'm seeing hopeful signs, but, but, but hopeful, but we still have so much work to do, and we have to accelerate so fast to meet the 12-year minimum. And now we have the National Climate Assessment coming out, which uh, involves the input of 13 federal agencies, which – it says what a lot of us already knew, but it, it's it's coming from within the Trump administration. That's the incredible thing about that report, saying that the consequences of not addressing climate change are incredibly serious for human health, for our cities, for at every level you can you can name. Uh, the problem is really really major, and of course the Trump administration chooses to release that report. On a Friday, not just any Friday, but the the slowest Friday news day of the year, arguably, you know, and still it got some attention. Yeah, well, I, and I think I don't think the Trump administration had much choice about whether to release that report or not, or whether right. to even do right. the report. They were mandated; it right. had to happen. Had to so it. they chose to do it in a way that that tried to give it as 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 little um, airtime as possible, which I think in some ways maybe backfired on them a little bit. Yes, I think it did um, too. And part of the reason it backfired is, is again, that momentum. People yeah. are more willing to engage in this. Um, I think the fires, the, the the fact that Iowa farmers had a hard time planting the crop this this year, had a hard time getting it out of the field, and this has become the norm and it's getting worse. Yeah. So I, I think people are – I think there's, there's, there's less resistance to talking about um, moving into action. However, that said – we still have a lot of work to do because it is absolutely dire that we accelerate action. We can't just keep doing it kind of incrementally. Yeah. Now, how important uh, in, in your community's perspective is, uh, is it to work with Native Americans? Because uh, we, we, in the work I do with Bold Iowa, we work very closely with the Native communities. Yeah. And their perspective on, on sustainability, on, on caring for the, the earth is I, – don't, I don't know of any other faith tradition that has it so strongly, uh, strongly stated – yeah, so um, we have not historically done a lot uh, of work with with native the native community. Um, certainly, they're part of the national movement, um, and we're certainly creating space in the state to to hear to hear their voice and to have them um, provide uh, provide insight and direction and 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 um, faith and uh, and action. So, uh, I would say. Uh, the the bulk of our work though is is really with the mainline Protestant and and Catholic voices in the state, um, not excluding anyone else. But that's where we're going to have the most political power, and that's part of what we focus on at the state level is is finding those solutions. Although that in itself is changing, the uh, among I mean my 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 guess from what I've seen, I haven't seen any any data lately, but my my assumption is that that membership in those churches is declining even as we may see more Iowans claiming other religious affiliations or none. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's part of the demographic change that's been happening for decades, um, and, and that really hasn't slowed down. Um, but I think what we have to look at is climate change is this opportunity to put our faith to work, 
to, and we're seeing that more and more that churches that historically have kind of stayed away from this discussion are moving into this into this discussion and really claiming a leadership role. Certainly, um, the Catholic Diocese of Des Moines is one of the leaders in the country in terms of addressing climate change, and Bishop Pates yeah. has spoken very prophetically about that. Uh, yes, I've seen some of his writings; commendable. And, and again, uh, the Interfaith Power and Light is a national organization with chapters, if I may. Yeah, state in, affiliates, in states uh, all across the country. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, we have 40 I think there's 40 state affiliates um uh, at part of the national movement. Yeah. Again, thank you for taking the time to come and talk with us and thank you for your work. Yeah, thank you. Ed. Thanks for having me on. Matt Russell folks with the Iowa Interfaith Power and Light and uh if folks want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Um iowaipl.org. So iowaipl.org. iowaipl.org. Yep. All right, thanks. Uh folks, uh, when we come back, uh we'll talk um We'll talk about how asylum seekers uh, arriving at the U.S. border are being greeted by tear gas. We'll talk about that when we come back. If you're listening on Facebook Live, you can continue to follow the program on the Fallon Forum website. That's www.fallonforum.com slash listen. We'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. Community CPA and Associates, with locations in Des Moines and Coralville, is the perfect place to go for all of your tax and accounting needs. Community CPA offers a wide array of services, from tax planning to business IT solutions. Call Community CPA today at 515-288-3188 or visit www.communitycpa.com for more information. Times are tough. And most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 246-8149. That's 246-8149. Hi folks, it's Ed Fallon reminding you that you can eat Iowa-grown food all winter long at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Over 90% of the food served at Hawk comes from Iowa farms and their dishes are amazing. I once brought a guy there from New York and he was blown away by the experience. He said it was like any fine dining you'd enjoy in Greenwich Village, but at one-fourth the price. So don't go all the way to to New York City when you can enjoy gourmet dining prepared with Iowa-grown food at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Ritual Cafe is located at 13th and Locust in beautiful downtown Des Moines. It's a great place for coffee, tea, smoothies, and a full vegetarian menu. Ritual Cafe also features music on the weekends. For more information, call Ritual Cafe at 515-288-4872. That's 515-288-4872.
When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like our cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie and delicious olive bar and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let our catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Our expert floral designers can even customize perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market. Good food, great entertaining. with you here today. Uh, later in the program, Tricia Ettringer is going to join us. She's a, a student at the University of Northern Iowa, and she's been instrumental in organizing a visit from the uh, chairman of the uh, tribe when uh, they were battling Dakota Access Pipeline up there in North Dakota. Uh, later in the program, I'll share with you uh, something from the, my book, uh, Marcher Walker Pilgrim. It's just being released. In fact, it's arriving today, and the, uh, the book launch for that will be this coming Sunday at, at 2 o'clock at uh, 500 East Locust if you're in Des Moines. So, um, yeah, the uh, woke up this morning to news about um, what's happening at the U.S. border with Mexico, not Canada, just in case there's any doubt about that. And um, it's disturbing. Uh, you know, I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who tends to be pretty hardline on immigration in that she, she wants to see everybody respect and obey the law. And I get that. And uh, I think she agrees that people who are coming here to apply for asylum have a right to do that. Because we know that in most cases, I think and actually one recent uh, analysis of people crossing the border over 90% of those seeking asylum passed the first test about whether or not they had a legitimate, you know, potentially legitimate claim for asylum. So um, I understand, again, why there is strength in numbers. When you're migrating from Central America, it is interesting, by the way, that the, the focus of immigration from the South has shifted from Mexico to Central America. And that's a shift of some significance because it involves an additional, what, 1,500 to 2,000-mile journey? Uh, it's grueling. And, you know, the, the, the fact that we've seen that shift indicates two possibilities, I think, two probabilities. One is that uh, life in Mexico may have improved a bit, and that's good. And uh, I think a lot of us are feeling encouraged by the election of Obrador, and we'll see how that goes. But the, uh, the other side of it is life in Central America is really tough. And the reality that a lot of people don't want to confront is that U.S. policy in Central America is a big part of why we have seen such a uh, horrible situation politically, um, militarily, economically. Now, that's not to say there aren't people within those countries that, uh, are, that abuse power, that uh, are tyrannical. And... And, of course, that they need to be held accountable. But, you know, again, U.S. policy, there's, there's a great book called Bitter Fruit that describes the 1954 overthrow of the duly elected government of Guatemala by the CIA. Uh, this isn't even a secret. They, they were less subtle about it back then. 
the overthrew the, uh, the government of Guatemala largely to benefit the United Fruit Company because we wanted to keep that supply of cheap bananas coming our way. This is true. This is all very well documented. And, again, the history of, uh, of, um, of death and torture and, and brutality in Guatemala, in El Salvador, uh, in Nicaragua – you, you look at the you look at U.S. policy and you look at you look at where it was most aggressive, uh, and you see the connection between that aggressive foreign policy and the uh, horrible impact on local people. And so, yeah, we have people who are migrating to come to a better life. And you know, Mexico has for the most part handled this reasonably well, and maybe another president might have handled it better than Donald Trump. But what we've seen here is. Of course, an incredible show of force. You know, instead of sending, oh, 5,000 additional firefighters or, or, or even members of the Guard to help fight fires and rescue people in California, where we still have people unaccounted for, hundreds of people unaccounted for, we send this massive uh, force to the U.S. border. Uh, and and, and it's, it's not like, you know, and I know it's been called an invasion. Who's invading our country? Mothers, children. People fleeing oppression, uh, you know, you know, economic, you know, economic devastation, but even more pointedly, potential, you know, you know, potential um, political persecution, and that's 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 an invasion, <laughs> you know. It's um, it's really hard to imagine how callous uh, someone can be to to uh, you know to to take that action when we have. So many more possibilities for how we could reasonably act. So there are now what a couple, three thousand, um, no five thousand. There are five thousand migrants camped in and around a sports complex in Tijuana, and uh, they're hoping to apply for asylum. But the agents at the entry point there process fewer than one hundred asylum petitions each day. So do the math on that: a hundred a day, five thousand migrants. It's um. It's almost unthinkable how long that's going to take. And you have these, again, 5,000 people. That's bigger than most Iowa cities, folks, <laughs> camped in and around a sports complex. I don't know what they're doing for food, sanitation, water, um, uh, avoiding you know, disease, and, and who knows what other kind of problems can, can, can come up in that kind of environment. We, I, w- I would think we'd want to, instead of sending 5,000 troops to the border, send 5,000 people who can help process you know, request for asylum. And, you know, I understand. Mexico is trying to, trying to play both sides of this. And, and I, you know, I guess in, in terms of that, they're doing a decent job. They're, um, they're, they're sending some Central Americans back home, which, again, I think is unfortunate. But they're also trying to accommodate people, except if they try to sneak across the border. So what happened was, of course, um, there was a peaceful protest, a march to try to appeal to the U.S. to... Uh, do that to to bring in more people to help process the asylum claims, and um, that uh, didn't go well. And some folks decided to just try to cross into the country since they weren't getting any kind of response. And that's when we saw the pushback begin and the the, the lobbying of tear gas, uh, and that affecting um, I, I mean even children. It's it's a really 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 sad and horrible sight, and there's no excuse for it. There there's again so many more better ways to respond to this, and I uh, I don't know what to say or do about it um, other than to continue to um, get the word out that this is happening, 
and that there are obvious and better solutions and that we need to we need to embrace those. All right, folks, I'm going to take a short break here. When we come back, we're going to talk to Tricia Ettringer about uh, the visit of uh, former uh, Standing Rock Suit Chairman Dave Archambault to Iowa. We'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here broadcasting live from Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines, Iowa. We're at the uh, studios of uh, uh, on the east side of Des Moines here and enjoying a miserably cold day. Okay, take the word enjoy out of that equation. Hey, before we go back to our conversation, I want to, I want to thank... Uh, I want to thank again uh, the folks around the country who rebroadcast this program on local community-owned stations. also want to remind you to subscribe to the program on iTunes and Stitcher, and also like us on Facebook. It's the uh, Fallon Forum Facebook page. Okay, so uh, welcoming to the program now, Tricia Ettringer. Hello, Tricia. Can you hear us? Hello. Yes, I can. <laughs> How are you? How are things up in uh, Cedar Falls? Um, they're not as snowy as um, other parts of the uh, parts of Iowa. Go ahead, we're, go ahead, rub rub okay. that in, rub that in. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing okay up here. Yeah. So hey, a couple of years ago, I think this uh, very same time of the year, uh, you and I and a bunch of other folks from Iowa and from all over the world, in fact, were at Standing Rock, uh, standing with the uh, the uh, Sioux and other uh, people who were protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline, as we've been doing in Iowa as well, and. Uh, some of us got to meet uh, Chairman uh, Dave Archambault, who is no longer yeah. the chairman, but uh, is still uh, someone who has, I think, a really important message to share about the challenges of our times. And he will be visiting Northern Iowa soon. Yes, he will. Um, he is scheduled to um, give a keynote at UNI um, in the Link Auditorium on the 28th at 7 p.m. And I was so graciously asked to be a part of that. Um, and to share my story as well. So um, he'll be um, focusing on, obviously, the, you know, the, the fight of Standing Rock and then um, how to successfully um, kind of fight future fights when, um, you know, dealing with everything that he has dealt with. Um, and then just kind of talking about kind of the situations that he faced during Standing Rock and his involvement. Yeah. Overall. And there was some controversy because uh, there were folks in the tribe who did not like the encampment, who did not want to see uh, that level of involvement in the uh, f fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And I, I know that Dave and, and others received some some pushback because of that. But uh, I don't know how, how much of that is planned to be discussed or whether that's just kind of water over the dam at this point. Yes, um, I'm not sure either. I know that um, that's definitely um, sparked some controversy. Um, so I am looking forward to the keynote and um, taking away from Dave's keynote. So I'm not sure how in-depth he is going to go. Mm -hmm. Is he traveling the country much, or is this kind of a unique opportunity? I think he is traveling. Um, the UNI Sustainability Office actually reached out to him because um, they were interested. So I'm not sure um, how that all happened or, you know, if it was just advertised and someone knew or 
So, but we're we're glad to have them come to the UNI. Um, I do believe we are the first college to um, to give the the Iowa land um, acknowledgement. Well, no, I shouldn't say Iowa, but the indigenous land acknowledgement. Right. Explain that to us, would you, Tricia? Yeah. So um, basically, we are going to start off with um, acknowledging all the First Nations that have history um, deeply rooted within the within the area or the you know the historical um or within the historical context of who the lands actually started off with um so we are we i think we we've done some extensive research um but obviously some of the history is not always recorded in textbooks and we actually have to go and find you know the real the real um, truth behind everything. So um, it's kind of harder to um, kind of pinpoint and make sure that everything is correct um, when every, uh, when some of this history is oral. So, yeah. Now, but now, I, think, I think they've done a good job though. Now in some, in some places you have uh, farmers and landowners and other, other people who are actually giving their land back. Uh, yes. I don't quite know how yes. that works, but the giving their land back to the native you know, tribes that used to live on that land before they were evicted by white settlers. Mm-hmm. Now, you and, um, I, you so, and I are not going that far, right? Yeah, no, we're not going that far, but it would be awesome, though, to, you know, create that that um, that dialogue. I mean, because that's definitely, you know, something that is being considered at this point in time, and it should be considered mm. um, if we are in this fight together. Um, but we do have treaties that have been broken and have been violated, and I do believe that those treaties should still be honored at this point in time. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it just it opens a dialogue. It opens conversation. I think um, Iowa did a really good job, um, you know, fighting. But I just there's so many other people that I know that just were unaware and still unaware of what the Dakota Access Pipeline is. And, yeah. You know all these other pipelines and what's what that really means. Well, and there are domain. and there may be more coming. I mean the the indication is yes. that the, uh, the that Energy Transfer Partners definitely wants to do something to create greater capacity. Whether they want to add a second line, uh, that was yeah. um, a few weeks ago. That was told to me pretty clearly by an inside source. But now they're they're kind of looking at their options of uh, of, of merely merely <laughs> uh, increasing the amount of oil flowing through the current pipeline and yeah. that and that increases when you when you up when you up the uh, amount of pressure to push more oil through a pipeline you up the risk as well the risk to the water yep. and land and also Absolutely. to the to the climate because you're going to be burning more fossil fuels at a time when Absolutely. everything is saying we can't do that so it's a big deal yep. and it sounds like uh again what what chairman Arshambo uh is is going to be talking about is not just the history of what happened at Standing Rock, but what needs to happen going forward. I think that's a pretty important conversation. Yeah, I think that's definitely. I mean, I feel like he is an individual that can definitely have a, a dialogue to start um, and give advice, um, just because of his position and what he what he saw and been through. And um, like I said, we're we're just we're happy to have him. So yeah. Okay, and again, he'll be speaking at the uh, University of Northern Iowa. Uh, yep. Which which building will that be in? It is in Lang Hall, um, the Lang Auditorium, and it'll start at 7 p.m. Um, the next day, too, he is um, supposed to be at the CME, which is the um, 
center of multicultural education. Um, is that also be, is that also at the University of Northern Iowa? Yes, it okay. is. The yep, it's at UNI. Um, he is supposed to have a Q and A um, at nine a.m. too, as well. So okay. Well, I'll be interested in hearing your report about how that goes. Um, and again, yes. congratulations on being recognized as somebody uh, who uh, is going to be involved with that uh, event. Thank you. I yeah. appreciate that. And your own background is you're 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 from the Ho Chunk Nation, which I don't know if that was that was that the, was that one of the nations that had uh, you know land in the Cedar Falls Waterloo area. Um, I. <laughs> I don't believe so. I mean, we have land here, but I don't believe it was in the direct path. I could be wrong, though. Right. Um, like I said, when it when you um, break down the history of, you know, how things happened and who who was where, and then, you know, obviously with the Indian Removal Act, it, it definitely shifted a lot yeah. of things. So. Right, right. Um, but um, my, I, I guess my whole thing is uh, that I'm, I'm just there to um, kind of support and um, share my story. The Ho-Chunks are from Wisconsin, and we, we deal with um, kind of the same thing up there. Um, and then we also, um, so the, there's a Ho-Chunk, the Ho-Chunk Nation in Wisconsin, and then there's the Ho-Chunks from Nebraska. Right. Um, Nebraska is facing the uh, Keystone XL pipeline. So if that goes through, then that's definitely going to threaten our our yeah. our, um, our livelihood. So. Yeah. Well, again, thanks for all your work, Tricia, and I really appreciate you taking yes. the time to uh, talk with us. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Tricia Ettinger. She's a student at the University of Northern Iowa and very active in efforts to oppose the Dakota Access Pipeline and to promote the uh, the importance of the rising power and vision of the Native American communities that that, uh, that she works with. Tricia, thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. All right. Hey, folks, uh, before we take a short break here, I want to, again, thank a few of our business partners in the Des Moines Metro. Uh, thanks to uh, Cinco de Mayo Restaurant on Southeast 14th Street, authentic Mexican food at very affordable prices with excellent service as well. Uh, thanks also to Diversity Insurance at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines, just east of the state capitol building. No appointment needed to stop by. That's Diversity Insurance. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant, located on East 5th and Walnut Street, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Uh, thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been providing 30 years' worth of service to critters large and small. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. And finally, thanks to uh, Community CPA and Associates with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. Uh, let Community CPA help you with your tax and accounting concerns. That's Community CPA. We'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. Community CPA and Associates, with locations in Des Moines and Coralville, is the perfect place to go for all of your tax and accounting needs. Community CPA offers a wide array of services, from tax planning to business IT solutions. 
Call Community CPA today at 515-288-3188 or visit www.communitycpa.com for more information. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 246-8149. That's 246-8149. Hi folks, it's Ed Fallon reminding you that you can eat Iowa-grown food all winter long at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Over 90% of the food served at Hawk comes from Iowa farms and their dishes are amazing. I once brought a guy there from New York and he was blown away by the experience. He said it was like any fine dining you'd enjoy in Greenwich Village, but at one-fourth the price. So don't go all the way to, to New York City when you can enjoy gourmet dining prepared with Iowa-grown food at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like our cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie and delicious olive bar and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let our catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Our expert floral designers can even customize perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market. Good food, great entertaining. Forum. Well, I wrote a book. It took me four years, but it's done. It's called Marcher, Walker, Pilgrim. It's about the Great March for Climate Action, and it's a very personal take on the experience with lots of reflection involved. And I'm, I want to share, um, you know, there's a commercial, and I can't remember who the commercial is by, but it says, don't leave home without it. Maybe somebody remembers what the product is, but it's funny. I don't remember the product. I remember the punchline. And you know, it got to the point where on, this, on the Great March for Climate Action, where we'd walked 15 to 20 miles a day, I would not leave home, meaning my tent, without my walking stick. <clears throat> that became the most important uh, element of my, of my daily trek, or as important as anyone else, and maybe not as important as my water bottle, but uh, <laughs> that was pretty important. <clears throat> and so um, I wrote a chapter in the book uh, called Walking Stick, and um, I'll read a little bit of it to you. Much of our route across the southwest includes stretches of historic Route 66. In New Mexico, we discover an even earlier Route 66 built in the late 1800s, long since reduced to a string of forgotten desert pathways pockmarked with frequent washouts. For several days, we enjoy traffic-free travel as we follow the old route around mountains, around the tops of mesas, and across dry steam stream beds. Occasionally, we pass abandoned buildings that once provided travelers with lodging, meals, whiskey, and supplies. Today, we stop for a break at a hotel that last housed guests a hundred years ago. The roof has collapsed. Trees and shrubs reach skyward from where bed frames and dressers once stood. The bricks that formerly defined strong walls now lay in piles scattered about. This hotel didn't crumble because the structure was unsound, but because the world changed 
and the owners were unable or unwilling to adapt. I stared at one pile of bricks partially buried under a gnarled web of weeds and tree roots. I'm reminded of the collapse of my marriage with Kristen. Unlike this hotel, the bricks of our relationship didn't just fall out. In what now seems like an extended fit of madness, I yanked them out one at a time. And by the fall of 2006, these acts of demolition had inflicted enough damage to the edifice of our marriage that it was poised to topple. In November of that year, not knowing what else to do, I checked myself in to Numellary Abbey near Dubuque. Yeah, I know, you thought I was going to say sought counseling. I wasn't that smart. I spent two weeks singing and praying with monks, helping with farm chores and walking through the forest. The experience didn't save my marriage, but it did result in a purchase that, years later, would become an essential element of my journey across America. Most monasteries have a cottage industry. I once visited one that made peach liqueur and another that specialized in fruitcake. New Mellory's industry is coffins. The monk's beautiful forest of oak, walnut, cherry, and hickory provides the raw materials. On the last day of my retreat, I visited the gift store to admire the carefully crafted wooden boxes. I wanted some memento of my time at the monastery, but wasn't yet in the market for a coffin, so I settled instead on a fine hickory walking stick. <clears throat> Two years later, my dad became the proud owner of a numellary coffin, and ever since I've felt connected with him through the forest that provided wood for both his need and mine. My walking stick didn't see much use until 2013 when I began training for the Great March for Climate Action. I discovered that, if used properly, my arms would absorb some of the impact, providing my legs with notable relief. I'd practice planting the stick firmly in front of me. Then I'd push hard until I could feel the tension in my triceps and forearms. As the stick completed its motion from front to back, there would be a slight lift in my stride and an increase in speed. To prevent the walking equivalent of white-knuckled driving, I'd roll the stick in my hand when I brought it forward, and I'd often switch arms. It took time, patience, and much practice, but I learned that a walking stick used properly is indeed a huge benefit to the long-distance walker. After marching close to 1,000 miles through three states, my stick has become an essential companion. In addition to what I learned while training, I've become skilled at using it for balance, especially when walking through ravines or on sloping shoulders of gravel. In cities, I use it to push walk buttons, saving a few strides at road crossings. In rural areas, I use it to fling roadkill off highways. My stick also becomes an important part of the story I share with people I meet. One day, Steve and I ran out of water. Look, I say to Steve, there's a farmhouse ahead, first one we've seen in miles, and likely the last one we'll see before we die of thirst. Nah, says Steve, let's keep going. I don't want to bother the guy. We'll, we'll make it. Okay, I say, you, you keep going, and I'll throw dirt over your parched corpse when I find you up the road later today. So we stop at the farm. Hello, I shout to the farmer as we get close to the barn, and a wiry, weathered Latino man, a bit older than me, steps out. We're walking across the country, I said, and we've run out of water. Would you happen to have a bit to spare? Sure, he says. Walking across the country, what for? 
he asked as he unlinked, un, unkinked a, a hose to fill our bottles. Well, we're trying to get people to understand that we have to do something about climate change, I said. The farmer nodded his head and asked, How far do you walk in a day? Oh, we probably average 16 miles or so, I said. Today we've got 18 to tackle. The farmer looked at my walking stick and said, That's a good hike. I'll bet that stick helps. It sure does, I affirmed. It reminds me of my dad, who died of cancer a few years back. His coffin was made from the same forest that grew the wood for this stick. The farmer seemed genuinely interested, so I continued. My dad used to tell me what it was like growing up in the Bronx during World War II, the son of Irish immigrants. Military experts warned of the horrible things happening in Europe and the South Pacific, but our leaders just sat on their hands. Eventually, America woke up, and everybody did their part. My dad would go down to the railroad tracks and collect tinfoil from cigarette boxes for the scrap metal dries. Yeah, the farmer said. My father fought in World War II. I was born a year after it ended. Not a coincidence, I guess, as he laughed a bit. My dad, your dad, everyone got involved, I said. As a nation, we retooled an entire economy in just a matter of months. We defeated fascism, and who knows what the world would look like today if we hadn't. There was a pause in the conversation as the farmer handed back our water bottles. We thanked him. Well, I said, these times aren't that different. It's time to wake up like America did back then. We've got to listen to the experts, to the scientists who warn us of climate change. I paused, then continued. That's why we walk, to wake people up to what's going on before it's too late. The farmer was thoughtful as he stared at the ground. He glanced up, looked at my walking stick, shook his head slowly and said, That makes sense to me. That story, first articulated in a barn in New Mexico, inspired by my dad and a hickory stick made by monks, that became my core message during the rest of the march. I shared that message hundreds of times over the next 2,000 miles. It almost always resonated. A reminder of the power of stories in communicating with people about a crisis as urgent and yet as intangible as climate change. All right, that's a, uh, a selection from my book, folks, called Marcher Walker Pilgrim. Uh, I'll be uh, officially launching the uh, book on December 2nd, this coming Sunday, December 2nd, at uh, 2 o'clock at 500 East Locust Street in downtown Des Moines, just above Woolies. And I hope folks will come. <clears throat> I hope people will read the book. Obviously, it's a, I think it's a timely message uh, that we have, to, we have to be more engaged on climate change if we're going to have any kind of a viable future. It's that serious. And, um, yeah, again, the book is very personal, as you maybe gathered from the beginning of that chapter. And uh, I will say walking 3,000 miles in eight months was probably the most difficult thing I did I've ever done in my life, although – Spending four years writing a book is a pretty darn close second. And part of it is that writing is very uh, revelatory. It, it forces you to examine your life, to think more deeply and, and, uh, and pointedly about your experiences, both your accomplishments and your failures. And gosh, I know I've had plenty of failures in life. In fact, the first chapter of the book is called Failure. So again, I hope you'll check it out. You can, you can buy copies of the book on the Bold Iowa website, just go to boldiowa.com, not .org, 
BoldIowa.com, and you'll see Marcher Walker Pilgrim pop up, and there's a way to learn more about the book there. There are excerpts, there are endorsements, there are some photos, and there's a button where you can go to purchase the book, both hardcover, hardcover and paperback. The hardcover copy has colored photos, paperback, black and white. So, again, um, the meeting this coming Sunday in Des Moines is the first of many, uh, many um, conversations I'll be having with people across the state and perhaps across the country about why this book is important and why it is absolutely critical that we, um, that we have, that we have uh, action on climate change. So, again, thanks again to, for tuning into the program. If you're listening on our community-owned station, stick around. We've got more conversation coming. And, again, thanks to Lorraine at 1260 AM. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon still with you here. And uh, taking a look at the G20 summit in Argentina. All right, so <laughs> I never put a lot of faith in these things. And uh, you know, they, there's, always, there's often something interesting that comes out of it. And it's hard to say for sure whether this will make any kind of um, uh, splash in the fake news or otherwise. But... Uh, one thing that might become clear at the G20 summit is that American workers are falling behind other workers in the world. The, uh, the U.S. scored the lowest in a recent um, United Nations index uh, that uh, ranked how much uh, activity each government, government that's involved with the G20 had uh, taken to meet certain development goals. Uh, yeah, and the U.S. was failing on nearly all of the goals. Related to, for example, creating more inclusive, more sustainable job growth. Uh, how embarrassing is that? You know, and how poorly does that speak to our prospects for remaining uh, a significant global leader when it comes to innovation, when it comes to treating workers well, uh, decent working conditions, you know, the writing's on the wall here. If we don't uh, change how we do business in this country, we're going to become the nation that corporations like to dump their cheap jobs on. <laughs> because we don't have decent wages, because we don't have affordable health care, because we don't have decent environmental and worker protection uh, standards. Uh, that's where it's heading. We'll see if that story gets any play coming out of the G20 summit. Otherwise, um, it might be a bit of a sleeper. We'll see. But uh, if, if the G20 is really to accomplish what needs to be done at this time, more than anything, we need, to see, we need to see the countries come out of that with a strong commitment to addressing the climate crisis. And, of course, we're going to get hit pretty bad by, by climate change. There's no way, shape, or form you can get around that economically, uh, environmentally, socially. It's going to be a major hit. But there's also an incredible opportunity, and that's what other countries are starting to capitalize on, much more so than we are. Uh, investment in wind and solar and bio, biodiesel and geothermal. Yeah, we've got some of that going on, but, but you know, then we see the U.S. going in the opposite direction, now becoming the largest oil producer in the world, ahead of Saudi Arabia, ahead of Russia, and at great expense to our farmland, our property rights, our water quality, uh, and, of course, our climate. So we'll see where the G20 takes us, but... Um, that's one story that might not get a lot of play, but should be 
the continued descent of the American worker uh, through no fault of his or her own, but because of a whole uh, series of policy initiatives at the state level, at the federal level, that continue to leave us further and further behind in a changing world that uh, we can't seem to keep up with. Uh, that might change, but it's going to take uh, some different leadership and some bold leadership. All right, so uh, you may know by now that my book, Marcher Walker Pilgrim, has uh, been released. It just uh, The first 600 copies just arrived this week, in fact, and the launch party for kicking off the uh, extensive book tour that is planned. That'll be uh, this coming Sunday, December 2nd in Des Moines, uh, with events scheduled across Iowa the following week. Uh, and getting in, getting a bunch of requests from around the country now. So if you know folks anywhere in the uh, country that would like to uh, uh, have a book reading and signing, let me know. Uh, I'll read you a little uh, sampling from uh, one of the chapters. You know, Keystone Pipeline in Nebraska is back in the news, and uh, this chapter is titled Crossing Keystone. But um, what I want to convey to you in this chapter is just how challenging the march could be at times uh, both because of a changing climate and also just because of things that you don't even think about. So I write, It's hard to understand how Kelsey can say with a straight face that we aren't suffering enough. You know, I may have escaped crucifixion by sprinkler last night, but I make up for it today during in an intimate encounter with mosquito spray. Bartley, Nebraska's town square is our campsite, and most of us are bedded down by dusk. I'm drifting off to sleep when the sound of a spray truck jars me into consciousness. Through the tent door, I see the toxic cloud of joy heading our way. I rush out wearing only shorts, waving my arms wildly. The driver stops, turns off the sprayer and says, well, I figured you could use an e a little extra dose of protection against these skeeters. Well, that's really kind of you, I replied groggily. It's just that some of our marchers are allergic to the stuff. I realize I'm lying. But I'm half asleep and convinced myself that a meticulous commitment to honesty is demanded only of the fully conscious. Besides, I say, that, that spray will just drift right through these tents, make us and our gear all sticky, I add truthfully. Not a problem, he says. I just didn't want you to get eaten alive. Hope you get some sleep, and I sure do admire what you're doing. I thank him again as I crawl back into my tent. Maybe having spared most marchers from being poisoned will earn me a few brownie points. I mumble as I contemplate the prospect of a decent night's sleep, the fragrance of malathion lingering in the hot summer's, summer night's air. Like the uh, rapid succession of plagues sent to torment biblical Egypt, next day brings a new form of suffering. Both our route and campsite are so infested with ticks that I pull 14 off me by the end of the day. Jane runs a piece of white paper over the weeds alongside the road, flips it over, and counts nearly 50 of the blood-sucking monsters. None of us have ever seen such a concentration of a creature that, from an anthropocentric point of view, is a prime contender for world's most evil insect. I joke that perhaps they've come here from across the country for some kind of national tick convention. On a serious note, I warn marchers to conduct a thorough tick check before crawling into their tents. I share the story of a young man on the peace march who was hospitalized in Des Moines after a tick embedded itself in his ear. Ironically, 
As we walk to raise awareness of the risks of climate change, we elevate our own exposure to these risks, including the growing frequency of tick-borne diseases. Just six weeks ago, a few hundred miles from our route, Johnny Mitzner of Delaware County, Oklahoma, died of heartland virus, compliments of a tick bite. Living almost entirely outdoors, marchers have reason to be concerned. Fortunately, none of us are infected with any of the half-dozen tick-transmitted diseases on the rise in recent years. A few days later, we barely avoid another opportunity to suffer, missing by 24 hours a monster hailstorm that stretched 8 by 100 miles. I'm enjoying my lunch break on a stump next to a cornfield, admiring the tall, healthy crop while I scarf two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. As I walk east, I notice torn corn leaves, then broken stalks. And by the time I reach the end of the field, the crop has disappeared almost entirely. Eight-foot-tall corn reduced to stubble, cut nearly to the ground. I've seen hail damage before, but nothing like this. We arrive at our campsite in a park in Gibbon to an almost warlike scene. Large hailstones and broken glass and smashed cars. Siding has been ripped off buildings, paint stripped from houses. In the park, mature trees that normally would provide shade are half naked, their foliage shredded by hail. I tried to imagine what would have happened to our tents, vehicles, and bodies had we camped here the previous night when the storm struck. Maybe we finally would have suffered enough to satisfy Kelsey. Quite possibly, between the absolute destruction of our tents, severe damage to our vehicles, and who knows how much carnage to tender marcher flesh, it would have marked the dramatic and painful, perhaps deadly end of the Great March for Climate Action. Well, that's a story from when we were crossing Nebraska on the Great March for Climate Action. And, you know, it's impossible not to look around you and see what's happening with climate change. I know we have a president that is, uh, well, you know, I'll say this. President Trump has moved beyond calling it a hoax to saying, yeah, it's real. But he's still unwilling to accept the fact that, you know, his fossil fuel buddies are instrumental in in, in causing the problem. And again, I know that we all participate in the carbon buildup that has afflicted our, our, our atmosphere. But the reality is that we don't have a lot of choice. Uh, I mean, I, I, I do a pretty good job here in Des Moines of getting around on foot, on bicycle, occasionally by bus. But to travel anywhere of any substance, any significance, you, you pretty much have to be either in a car or in an airplane. Yeah, there are corridors in the U.S. where you can you know, get, get by with a bus or, or a train. But uh, I, you know, I've, I've tried to envision traveling around the country, giving this book tour by train. And it's, um, it's impossible. You can't do it. You can't make it work in any kind of manner that makes sense at all. And so, yeah, we're all complicit, but we don't have any choices. And that's the problem. You've got, you've got folks who are getting rich off fossil fuel, and we're seeing it right now like we've never had in the history of this country, where land is being exploited, property rights trampled on, in order to build pipeline after pipeline for gas, for oil, for export. 
We even now have energy transfer partners admitting that what they're building and what they want to build going forward are export pipelines. They lied about that when they built it, but now they're, now they're honest about it, <laughs> which doesn't do the landowners and the rest of us affected by it any good. But um, my point is we, you know, we, the signs are all around us, and yet these companies continue to do what they're doing. In fact, ExxonMobil knew back in the 1970s that its product was causing climate change, that it was basically you know, setting up for vast environmental destruction, and yet they went ahead with it anyhow. So, you know, I, I don't know what more it's going to take to convince President Trump that now that he's admitted that climate change is no longer a Chinese hoax, that he's admitted that it's happening, the next step is for him to concede that it's caused by our vast fossil fuel consumption, and that we need to move quickly beyond that. Uh, and all the signs are there. The UN report saying we have 12 years to figure this out. The recent national climate assessment from 13 federal agencies, uh, you know, that, again, President Trump is pretty uncomfortable with that report because the report says we are in for a world of hurt. And he doesn't deny climate change when he is asked to speak about that report, but he thinks he does not believe that we're going to be affected by it, which is, I don't know how you accept that climate change is happening and not understand that there are going to be some really, really serious impacts. That's just part of the equation. So, yeah, again, what we experienced on the march was putting ourselves in harm's way, um, if not every day, at least every week something happened. It was either ticks or, or six days of incredibly strong storms in eastern Colorado, uh, two incredible hailstorms. Again, one of them eight by 100 miles in girth. We had the first day of the march where we had 10 inches of rain in L.A. That was uh, very unusual, especially after 18 months of drought. Uh, over and over again, we saw the impacts of climate change on ourselves and on the people we met along the way. And um, we're seeing them now more than ever. You know, Iowa has had an interesting uh, angle on climate this year. We are on track to see what might be the coldest November in the, state, in the state's recorded history. If not the coldest, then one of the coldest. This is after already having the coldest April in the state's history. At the same time, you have unprecedented heat elsewhere in the world. We have unprecedented wildfires with more destruction, more damage, more death than ever before from a fire. Um, we've had a relatively mild hurricane season, although tell that to the Carolinas. You know, it, the impacts are, are there, they're powerful, they're growing, and the ability to put your head in the sand and deny that this is happening is becoming a harder and harder gymnastic stunt to perform. And one of my, you know, I, I, we all have to be doing everything we can, folks. And I hope that one of my contributions over the next um, year can be to um, tour this book, you know, you, you know, broadly, not just in Iowa, but around the country in the hopes that people read it, find the story interesting and engaging uh, and come away from it saying, yeah, I've got to do my part as well. And, you know, and all of us have to do our part personally, but our biggest challenge is to motivate the larger mechanisms that run this country, the, the political inf infrastructure, the business infrastructure, the mainstream media, which still seem inclined to ignore climate change. That's our challenge, folks. And if you'd like to uh, talk to me about a visit to discuss Marcher Walker Pilgrim, go to boldiowa.com. Check out the page there and let me know what you think. We'll get back to you. This is Ed Fallon.